Hi there, and welcome to another episode of African Business Stories, your insight into female innovators and entrepreneurs building and running businesses in Africa. I'm Akego Koye, and on the show today, I'll be chatting with Valerie Trore, founder and executive director of Niel, an advocacy campaigns and public affairs agency. Having spent time working in international development, she quit her job, sold all her belongings, and set up Niel. We talk about that journey, organizing presidential campaigns in Africa, women in politics, starting her own radio show, and much more. Let's get into it. Hi, Valerie. Welcome to African Business Stories. Hello. How are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah. So so just starting from the beginning, like I normally do. So I know you were born in Burkina Faso, um, which is in West Africa for, for anyone listening who's wondering where is Burkina Faso. Um, just right there next to, you have many neighbors, Niger, I think Ghana, yes. Togo yes. as well. Cote d'Ivoire. You have quite a yeah. few neighbors, but Cote d'Ivoire, yeah, it's right there, you know in the middle of West Africa. So you were born there, but you, you comment about being raised by the continent. And, and I wonder what, what's, what's that about? Uh, uh, we left, my family left Burkina when I was five. Um, my uh, okay. father is an, an agronomist and started working on projects around agriculture around the region. So when I was five, we moved to Mali and stayed there for two years. Okay. And then uh, he moved to Chad in a really tiny, small village in the south of Chad. And I was the only one with him there. And then back to Burkina and then Benin, Cotonou for six years and then back to Burkina. So literally my from the age of five to uh, graduating from high school, I was around the region. So that was my upbringing. I left my home around at five and the rest of the region became my home. So at what point did you learn English? Because you speak French in Burkina Faso. Yes. So when um, I mean, I learned English in school and by the time I was moving to high school, I think at that time already, my parents thought that uh, the English language system would probably be a strength for us to to have. My sister had gone to the U.S. to go to university, but she had the handicap of when she went there to have to do a whole year to just learn English before she could start university. So they figured we would get started early. So they shifted us from the French system to an English language system in a really small um, school ran by a family from Togo that was doing the English language system. And that's where I learned English from, uh, which which grade is that? Seconde in French? 10th grade. That's when I started. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. And and I, I picked up that you also speak Portuguese. Yes, I do. Yeah. That came much later. I um, Once I finished university and I realized that I wanted to get into development, this was my world. I had become my world. And what I knew was Africa and what I knew was the U.S. And for me, there's such a value in learning about the rest of the world that isn't just where you come from and that is not completely different. So I wanted to go to another region around the world to learn and to understand how that context is. So I went as a volunteer in a program um, that took me to Brazil for a few months and really doing manual labor and learning the language and living with with people and the family that I stayed with in the north of uh, of Brazil in Recife, I'm still friends with them today. And this was 20 years ago. So, so you then followed in your sister's yes. footsteps and went to the yes. U.S. 
so, so what was that? What was that? What What did you study in college? And what was that whole experience like in shaping your 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 mind? I've I've always been a very curious person, and um, curious and and testing the ground. I wasn't these one of these students that feels, uh, thankfully, a certain pressure to be um, sort of the doctor or the perfect A's or, and I always followed what I was interested in. And when I wanted to go to college, initially I applied to do journalism and because I wanted to write. And for me, that's how you write um, because I love reading and I love writing. And uh, when I went into journalism, um, I realized that I didn't like it because the who, what, when, where, how was too constrictive, was too limiting. So I decided to do a more, a wider degree in communication, electronic media, television, radio, all of that. And I really enjoyed it, but there was something missing. There was something missing. So I decided to add a second major. And so I took on literature, creative writing, because I found a voice there. So I did that. Um, And then within the second or third year, I walked into a Legacies of Modern Colonialism course in university. And I remember that because there were four Africans in the class and we walked in with such pride and such arrogance, like legacies of modern colonialism. That's, that's our story. We know this. It is the hardest bee I have ever had to work for. I mean, it, you realize at that point how much you don't know about your own continent, how much you don't know about your own history, because we make the assumptions that we know because you are a child of the continent, because of course, you know, your history, we don't know it. As Africans, we do not know our story Mm. and the reading, the going back, the assessing. And that's when I realized that communications and what I wanted to do with it and writing was not enough. So I added the third major because I was just curious and went into (laughs) international relations as as a third major. The school was not really open to that at first, but I said, it's my choice. My, My curiosity led me there. And and then that ended up being what drove my career. Interesting. So, so did you did you go from from graduating to working at Oxfam, or or what the or what happened in between? No, there was there was a major thing. I think beyond the graduating, there was a moment. So I was into I was lucky enough to have these two sort of pathways that I could follow: the comms pathway, and I wanted to direct award shows. Um, that's the comms pathway, and then I had the opportunity to do an internship, um, and. Uh, there was a, a program that came to the school and was looking for um, interns and I applied to a thing called the, the I think, believe it was the Washington Center uh, to go do an internship in DC. And when I looked at all of the options, I saw Amnesty International and I thought that is the only organization that I would want to work for if I don't go uh, the comms route. And I applied for the internship and I got a letter saying I did not get in. So I thought, okay, that's a sign. You know, it's not what I'm meant to do. So I will try an internship in, in the arts or in media. And about two weeks later, I got another letter from Amnesty saying, we've opened up an internship for you because we think your profile is interesting. So that's how I ended up uh, doing that internship. And I walked in there with um, the director of, so the, the department was split into long-term campaigns, so major campaigns, and then smaller, shorter-term, three-month campaigns. And the woman who was managing the three-month campaign had left when I got in as an intern, and literally they hadn't replaced her yet. So the director of uh, campaigns at the time just handed me a file on the Congo 
and said, run with it. Yeah. I mean, I am, what, 19 at the time, 20. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and then help with the torture, anti-torture campaign. So I spent three months just doing that, just my heart being stabbed every day. Wow. I mean, you, you're, I have so um, much compassion for that kind of very visceral work around human rights violations that are so real. And yeah, I spent three months doing that. And I was falling in love with the work and something that had purpose that you were doing that meant something. And one of the things that I will never forget, and I think that's the defining moment where it was very clear what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, is at the time anyways, when you walked into Amnesty in DC, there was a, a list of the people on death row. So you couldn't avoid just seeing that, right? And the man who worked on the death penalty campaign was, I, I wish I could, I, I want to find his name because this man had such mm. an impact on my life, mm. was just not a very joyful person. Uh, at least that's how I saw it. And um, I can understand why when this is your work every day that I just didn't seem as a joyful person. Mm. And one day we were sitting, uh, I don't know why we were working late, but a lot of people were working late that day, were in the office. And I heard him start screaming and he walked out of his office. He was just jubilating, just happy and just loud and just jumped. Like there was such a joy coming out of this man that I was like, what is happening? And at that moment, one of the cases that he had been working on for years, if not a decade, had gotten off of their throat. I saw him and I was like, that is what I want to do with the rest of my life. If you can have an impact on, and the the man probably never was not leaving jail, but just to be able to even see one change, however small that is, or however rare that comes along your path, if you do it and you're able to see it. I saw that and I was like, yes, that's what I'm going to be doing. So that happens and, and you, you go back to college. And, and so at this point, you focus on the development side of, of, yes. of, of your degree. And it, at the time, I knew what I wanted to do. I mean, I'm still young, but I knew what I didn't know. So um, I'm African. I am going to be graduating soon. So this was my last summer this internship before my uh, my senior year. And I had managed to sort of, I would have been done in three and a half years. So my question is, what do I do and how do I increase my chances and my understanding? So that's why I decided to volunteer and to go outside of the U.S. and to go into a region that I don't know. And this is what took me to Brazil. So I joined this program. We fundraised ourselves, literally went um, door to door for three weeks, um, just asking for support, for resources to do this Brazil program. And then went there and learned Portuguese and just saw similarities in, in what I had seen um, in growing up here in, on the continent, be it in, from rural areas to urban areas, being from um, just the south of Brazil to the north of Brazil, just the differences. And I learned so much. And when I came back, then I had graduated. And you know, you either get a job or you're on a student visa. You pack your bags and you go home. So I had a bit of time, right, um, to figure out what was going to happen. And I was in, uh, I went, I moved to DC because that's where the development capital is. And I was working at a clothing shop. I was a, a, a teller at a, at a shop, just looking for a job. And because my, um, the director of campaigns right. then had told me, uh, Janice Christensen, she's like, when you graduate, 
if you want to do this work and if you want to focus on content, do not take an admin job. Don't do it. Simply because when you take an administrative job, that is all you're going to have the chance to do. An admin job is very different from what you're trying to do. And if that's all the only thing you have the chance to do, it's going to be very hard to break outside of that because you get in that. So there were opportunities that I would see and I stuck it out for, for mm-hmm. several months and saying, I want to start in a program where I want to start as an associate because mm-hmm. I just kept on remembering what she had told me at the time. And and that's when I applied for this job at, at Oxfam and, and got the job as a entry-level program associate. And that's how I started my career. Wow. So how long were you at Oxfam? I was at Oxfam for five years and uh, three of those were in Boston uh, at the headquarters. And then again, uh, I was fortunate enough because of curiosity. I mean, I was still volunteering with Amnesty. All my vacation were spent with Amnesty. I was a country specialist for Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea, and just doing that because the civil and political rights world was such a big thing to me. And Oxfam was the economic social and cultural rights world. And at the time, those were separate. And uh, it was at the moment where a lot of the organization were starting to talk about the rights-based approach. And because I had one foot in both worlds and just that curiosity, I started pushing that. And that allowed me to grow the program that I was in and to uh, beg my bosses to let me learn more and see how we could fuse those two worlds. Um, And the more we did that, the more I got the opportunity to work with colleagues in Asia, to work with colleagues in Latin America. So again, it was always a focus of what what learning can I do? How can I use what I know? And that curiosity has always driven me. And then uh, because I was always networking and talking to people, the regional director for West Africa, um, whenever he would come to the headquarters, we would talk. And at one point he said, don't you want to come home? Hmm. And I said, of course I want to come home. That question. And I was like, of course I want to come home. And he's just like, okay. And I was like, if the opportunity arises, um, I will. And uh, maybe after a year after that conversation, they were hiring a a communications and advocacy officer based in Dakar in the regional office. So he sends me the, the job advert, which required seven years of experience, which I didn't have. I was a three. Um, and at the same time, the Asia office was hiring, but I saw it. I was like, you know, I don't have, there's, I'm four short, but what I have diversity. I have seen things. It's my region. You know, I pumped myself up and I said, well, he sent it to me. I'm a blind. And, uh, if, if I get the opportunity to sit down in that interview, he's not going to have a choice. Um, so that's, that's what I did and, and got the job and, and packed up because for me, there are certain types right. of work that I want to do that cannot be done for me sitting in Boston, in DC, in Europe. And part of that is being as close to the work or the contribution that I make as possible. Hmm. So let's pause there. Talk, talk to us a little about, you know, it's that whole thing, being a woman and th- there's a lot of conversation around how we don't, um, big ourselves up enough and how we, you know, there's, there's a, there's a tote bag that, that somebody, somebody sent me a photo of, he said, what would Chad do? You know, 
Um, <laughs> you know, and it's that whole thing about how men see themselves Absolutely. and see opportunities as opposed to how women see themselves and see opportunities and how we can be limiting. Um, someone see that and say, seven years, I only have three years experience, so maybe it's not mm -hmm. for me. So can you talk to us a little about how you perceive yourself and, and op opportunities? I think there's two parts to, to that. And one, we cannot emphasize enough the importance of how you're raised, right? And how that is inculcated. I, uh, I'm fortunate to have a father who raised three girls and has, and, and a boy, and has always put in our heads, you are better than no one and no one is better than you. So right. th there's no, and he would very clearly say, there's no boy, there's no girl in this family. There isn't. And part of that is this upbringing that never right. allows you to second guess your, the possibilities that are for you or hmm. the things you can do or you can't do. It's just like, wow, wow. Even it was not even a conversation to be had. Um, and part of that wasn't this um, excessive push that somehow you brush yourself on the shoulder and say, I am the ish. It's just simply, there is no reason why you can't. So if you walk in with, there's no reason why I can't, I may choose not to and not invest the time and the resources and the study. It may not be something that I want bad enough to fight for it, hmm. but so, so I think the upbringing and how we raise girls is important in this notion that somehow you need to be perfect to be able to aspire to this. No one is. Um, so this, this level, so, so that's the first thing. The second thing I think, and, and which has been really helpful for me in my career, um, and even as I left the, the institutional world to go on right. to entrepreneurship, the only question is, what's the worst that can happen? That I get a no? And then what? What, what, did I, what, what does that do? Did I die? Getting a no is okay, but I tried. I stepped in there and if I'm not the right fit for this, it doesn't necessarily affect my entire value of myself uh, because it is, it is a job. Right. I've, sometimes I would apply to jobs that, that I didn't want just to see where I stood, um, just to, you know, push myself just right. to test the waters to see, is this where I would be able to shine? Um, but I do agree with you that there's a lot of, I, today I manage a lot of women. There, there in, in my team, there are quite a lot of women and I see that. Um, I remember, and again, it's a break in the story. Uh, we, two, two, two women colleagues of mine that had worked on this project, really brilliant, done case studies. It was setting up a ministerial network, an African ministerial network in, on agriculture. And we were launching that network in Rome um, at IFAD. And these two women literally had done all the work. They had uh, traveled. And as we sit there, and I'm facilitating the session with on the high table, and as I'm sitting there, I see them standing at the door. So everybody comes and they take front row seats and they're sitting there. And I see them at the door acting as if they're ushers. And I look at them and I call and I was like, why are you guys there? No, 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 we're helping. I was like, that's not where you need to be. This is your conversation. You need to sit there front and center, take your place. But the assumption of this, you know, demure, take, you know, take a step back or it's not my place. It's very pro prominent and I see it. So I, I hear what you're saying because we do this to ourselves. But I would say part of 
the chance I've seen. And we need to be really mindful of how we raise girls. I totally agree. Thanks for sharing that. So you get this job, hats off to you. You moved to, to Dakar, Senegal, and you're working with Oxfam. Yes. Um, I, I, I think one of the, the, the important things is also sometimes you leave a certain level of comfort for another kind of comfort. Um, I took a huge pay cut moving here for the same organization, but it was worth right. it. Everything, I mean, I think part of it is questioning what drives you and what moves you. And it is the best decision I could have made um, in doing that. And then I'm here for two years. And uh, I think at some point after five years, I started thinking, okay, maybe it's time to start looking at what I do next, um, but not really actively. So I'm just, uh, and I had an amazing experience here. Um, the It was a small team, the regional director, amazing, the leadership was amazing um, in in a very West African team of people that were just really brilliant. And I learned a lot about management here. And um, I would go to Kenya for a meeting. Um, and uh, as there's this man in this meeting that says, you know, we're hiring for a Pan-Africa position. Would you be interested? And I said, I'm not moving to Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want to move uh, to Kenya. And then um, one thing led to another. And then just after about a couple months of just insisting, I looked at this position and I said, this would be really good. Because right now, my um, remit, my coverage is, is West Africa. And this position would allow me to really have a major um, space to learn from. And it would be Pan-African. And it's 18 countries it's on a, wow. you know, focusing on, on, on um, livelihoods. So I, I ended up applying and, and moving to, to Nairobi uh, as a, as a Pan-African program manager uh, for two years after, after Oxfam for a court. What was living in Nairobi like? It was difficult. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kenya is beautiful. Uh, Nairobi is, is very different than the cities I'm used to in West Africa. It's very different and you have to be a lot more mindful of your space and safety and security than I was used to. So that was a challenge for me. Um, of course, the weather is great. The food is great. People are great. Um, but that living intention at the time, this is 2006, 2007, was a bit difficult for me. And I did not enjoy myself um, in Nairobi. Uh, now, after leaving Nairobi, when I go back for work, I love it. But it's it's you have to understand what what uh, what works for you. I don't like big cities. Uh, this is why Dakar is perfect for me. It's the perfect right. size. It's a small city. It's still a city, but it doesn't have this mega feel that Nairobi right. can have with all of what that means, right? So, hmm. but work wise, it was amazing. That's 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 interesting. Um, so so if you can just walk us through. So so we're now in twenty two thousand and seven, coming up two thousand and eight. And clearly, I know that you, you start your company in 2008, so that's where I'm going. But, but I'm just wondering what's going on in your head. What's going on in your head? Young, young lady, you've moved, you've moved back to the continent, had a great run in Senegal. You're now in Nairobi. And clearly, you start having some kind of shift in your mind. And I'm wondering if you can just, you know... Walk us through that. So what kind of led you to then go from working in international development for these large organizations to becoming an entrepreneur? I think part of that, that the entrepreneur bit was because this is the only way I could do what I wanted to do. So right. it's, I've been you know, working now for six years 
And I have done several campaigns on the continent uh, that have been, have different degrees of success. Some have led to policy shifts, some have led to mindset, like I've, I've worked. And at that point, uh, there's a few things that I see in the space, in the sector. Uh, the first thing is that most of the strategies that are developed around advocacy on the continent are not developed on the continent. So the organizations or the leadership that are sitting um, in the global north develop a strategy that's supposed to be the same across the board. Well, once you've been around the continent enough, you sort of start to realize that it can't be, um, which theoretically we know. But when you see it in action and you're asked to implement, um, I had a, a, you you sit in rooms and you're like, what you're saying does not make sense. I had a colleague at some point, um, and I'm not going to say which organization, which I'm, you know, later that said, I want to start a campaign called Hungry Women on a Bus. And I go, excuse me, hungry. So you're going (laughs) to, that will travel from South Africa to Nairobi. And I'm like, so Hungry women under us. You're going to keep them hungry for how long? It's just, you know, the, these are grand ideas of this is what advocacy looks like, or we're going to send, you know, doing this campaign when I was working on trade where Chris Martin was the, the face of the campaign. Well, Chris Martin doesn't mean anything to anybody here. And that is not right. to take anything away from his greatness. Um, but if we're not really conscious of how do we develop campaigns that work, if we don't focus on what is going to work, not what is going to be loud, not what is going to be fun, not what I want to do, but what is going to be effective, then we're losing and we're wasting our time. So at that point, I start musing about how are we not developing this? So that's the first thing. The second thing is very few organizations have the time to take a step back, even when their staff are, even as their staff are brilliant, to take a step back and question what we're doing. Most of, and and you know this, of our organization will go from workshop to workshop to conference to conference to workshop to conference. Has it ever changed anything? Why do we keep doing this? Because as humans, we do what we're used to doing. We don't question it. We don't ask ourselves, why is it not working? So that's the second problem. It's just taking a step back and saying, what is that working? And then the third bit is to step into the space. We're not developing the skill set on the continent that can take that space. You have very good policy people. You have very good communications people. But for me, advocacy is a combination of both. It's being able to understand the policy, to understand the practice, and being able to frame it in a way that can reach people and that can get them to move. That is how change happens. And I wasn't saying that we're really consciously developing a sector around advocacy. So those were the things. So I started saying, like, I would like to to do that. And I would like to develop a, a an agency that could do that. But I'm 27. I have no money saved. I, you know, I still think I need the experience. Everything I've learned, I've learned on my own. And I think, okay, I might need to have um, a mentor that knows more than me uh, to work under for a while. I need to save money. I need to, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to give myself three years. So I'm at Accord. I look for a job and I find this great job um, for an international campaigner role uh, at ActionAid and I apply for it. Um, the, the story is a bit long, but anyways, I get the job and I get the job and I start the job. And within four months, I realize, no, girl, this is not the job. This. Hmm. Um, so you have three choices at this point. Choice number one, you fight and you get fired because we really don't have the same understanding of 
what I believe how we should campaign, but that's a subjective choice, right? I can't, we're not, what I thought it was, it wasn't. Um, I can just sit there and shut up and, and get my salary at the end of the month. And, uh, but I'm again, lucky enough that I don't have a family. I am 27. I can take that risk. What is the worst that can happen at this time? And if it doesn't work, I can go back and get a job and I have no problem in, you know, hustling if I need to, whatever job I need to do to, to pay the bills. I will, I will uh, legally, of course, <laughs> I will do, I will do what I need to do. So it's, I don't need to be at this level or at that level. So, um, I'm not at a point in my life where just I'm comfortable in just the comfort or I can just leave. And, um, I decided to leave. So after four months I, I resigned because it just realized it wasn't the fit for me, but then I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, are you going to go look for another job or do you want to start this agency? at this point, but I know nothing about business. I, I know nothing about entrepreneurship. I am bad at math. I have no money saved. And what I was in Nairobi when I got the job, I was supposed to be moving to Johannesburg. So I was going through the work visa process. And in the meantime, they had told me, could I stay in Nairobi? And like I said, Nairobi as a city just didn't fit right with me. So I asked, can I come back to Dakar? Because there is an office in Dakar. I don't need a work permit to be here. So I can work from your Dakar office in while I'm waiting for the work permit. So um, the organization said, yes, I came here. But my container with my car and my furniture was in Nairobi, waiting for the approval to be shipped to South Africa. So I'm in Dakar and that's when I resigned. So when you resign, that container is not going to be shipped to Dakar. I mean, you're done. So, um, and trying to ship it myself would be more than what's in the container. I mean, I'm still, I've been only working for six years. It's not like um, I have that much stuff. So that's when I was like, okay, I, um, I literally don't know where to start. So I started doing a business plan that I recently went back and read and it's a joke. Uh, but you know, <laughs> it is, I, I mean, the, the advantage of, of that time is when you ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? And again, you have to be mindful of, of the privilege I had at this time. If the worst that can happen is that I can go back and look for a job because for the past six, seven years, I have proved in my industry what I can do, I will find a job. It will be a different job. It may be not be at the level that I am today, but I, I was confident enough that if this doesn't work, it will take me a while, but I will, I can, I have something to fall back on. I have an education, I have a network um, that I can fall back on. But at that time I had no money and I had no way of um, getting my stuff to Dakar. So I did ask uh, to be sent to Nairobi for a ticket to go just clear out my stuff. And I went there. I landed on a Saturday. On Monday, I sold everything that was in that container, the car, the furniture, everything. And um, on Tuesday or Wednesday, I was back in Dakar with $10,000. And that was my starting capital 12 years ago. That's all I had. No, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's what started this business, that container um, and $10,000. That is a great story. So tell us about Niel. What, what, what is Niel about? What does Niel do? Niel is an advocacy and campaigns firm. What we do is make people do things that they don't necessarily know they want to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so inherently, there, there are two sides to, to Niel. And we, we work with 
foundations, civil society organizations, social movements, youth organizations, associations of women. It really is about influencing public policy or influencing behavior. Behavior at the community level or public policy at the local, national, regional, international level. So we will work with a youth movement in the DRC or in Dakar. We will work with Oxfam. We will work with Amnesty. We will work with um, the Hewlett Foundation in helping develop their advocacy strategies. The advantage that we have is you end up learning so much from different organizations and different sectors. You see what works and you're able to take a step back because you're not so ingrained into the day-to-day of habit that you're able to offer a new way of doing things and really testing and understanding how behavior happens, be it politicians' behavior, public policymaker behavior, community behavior, and help into how you fashion that and how you transform um, the way in which we operate as a society. So that's what Niel does. And the the first our first clients were some of my former right. employers. Um that and, and that's what I'm saying. If if you step into every place saying, what am I learning and how am I doing the best that I can in this particular place, you leave well. And when you leave well, you're able to to, to come back and say, can I help you? And if you've when you were in, you were helpful. When you're out, you can still be helpful um, of that process. So that's what Neil does. Um, and we work uh, across the world. We have a, a focus of choice on the continent because there's enough work for us to do right here at home. Right. Um, but from the beginning, it was thought and planned as an international firm hmm. born and bred in Africa. Okay. That's who we are. Our, 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 our scope and our spread of work is not solely one country, it's not solely the continent, because the skill set, the knowledge, the professionalism that we hold can stand onto any world stage. And that's what I wanted to build. Hmm. You, you made a comment once in, in the green room about, about skills being global. And while we're talking about building a global firm, it, African... Uh, African-based firm that is global. Um, I, I'm reminded of that statement about skills being global. And I just wondered if you can unpack it a little. I, I think some of our listeners might benefit from your your um, your thoughts on, on that. Sure. I, I, I think one of the, the challenge I see of, of some of my friends that are also entrepreneurs, and again, it's very sector specific, right? If you're building something physical, your physical space matters, right? When you're in the service industry, when what you're selling is your skill set, your mind, it doesn't matter where that skill set is, it is still that level of skill set. And I think part of that is how we position ourselves on the global stage by saying, if I see a call for proposals in Thailand, sitting in Dakar, do I dare? to say, I will apply. And as you were saying earlier about as women, do we hold ourselves back? I think sometimes as Africans, we hold ourselves back. If you can do what you do in Senegal, if you can do that in Mozambique, if you can do that in um, Cameroon, why can't you do that in Myanmar? Why can't you do that in London? Why can't you do that in Peru? Because in our industry, the starting point, and I, I say this to my colleagues all the time, what I know is that I don't know. So when you look at every situation, every single context is I don't know, then you can go in with the humility to learn and to be able to offer what you do know. And that 
is not ge geography specific. Mm -hmm. So your skill set can be global if you build it to be global. One of the biggest, for me, uh, deciding factor, I mean, there were several milestones in Neil's life. I remember when we made our first uh, 36,000 CFA, which is probably about $50 profit. We celebrated. <laughs> um, I mean, Carl, hey, I lived, the first year I lived in the office. Wow. Because when you have $10,000 as your starting capital, that's all you have. I, nobody else banked it. I, I was alone. You can't pay two rents. So I found a place that could fit as home office. Immediately, I hired two interns that were paid, but paid, but to have a structure. But part of that is we're going to have an operation and we're going to operate professionally from the beginning. I signed the checks, but my assistant, who is still with me to this day um, as a logistics manager, was the holder of the checkbook. So there were checks and balances from the beginning because I know I, I know myself and just trying to put those checks and balances very early to not confuse the business money with my money. Mm. And so those things were very important. So milestones, we celebrate that. We celebrated the first year that we made it out. We celebrated when I could offer health insurance to the team. We sell, But one of the moment where I was like, okay, we're, we're, we're where I want us to, to, to be. We um, got hired to develop the support, the development of the entire um, theory of change for all the 12 areas of campaigns of Amnesty International headquarters, as well as support them in developing their operational plan for all the 12 areas, as well as work to develop the campaign life cycle. Right. For me, what you know that that work could have been given to any firm sitting anywhere and that the international secretariat sitting in London still looked at all of the options. And yet in those options, we were the strongest to be able to do that. For me, that says we have moved ourselves to be able to be at a point where it's not that it's in London that it matters. It's that you are seen as somebody that can offer support and expertise that can span literally Africa, Latin America, Asia, North America, Europe, all of it. Hmm. So again, your skill set is not pigeonholed into because you're African, the only thing you could know is Africa. I choose to focus here because this is where my heart is, but that skill set is not a regional skill set. Um, so it's been 12 years now. And just looking, yes. looking back, you know, the, the, the landscape, just if you can just reflect a little on the, the landscape um, then, 12 years ago and today, and the, the types of challenges, have, have the types of challenges you face changed? Have they stayed the same? Um, yeah, if you can just reflect on that a little. The challenges are, are very different. Okay. Um, uh, managing two interns. Um, and managing staff um, are different. Um, it's it's the expectation of professionalism grow in the sense that you're not just focused on the professionalism and the work of one or two people, is that you have to inculcate a certain culture of work. And that takes another set of skills. Um, the I said earlier that I wasn't an entrepreneur and I'm not a business person, mm. but you have to learn. The more you grow, you have no choice right. to learn finance, to learn um, taxes, to learn human resources. And the more you grow, you, the more you have to deal with it. But 
yet staying true to what your core values are. And for me, one of those core values is that we will stay human and we will have fun and we will stay friends with each other. Um, I despise the very strict hierarchy that sometimes exists in businesses here. Mm. And yes, ma, yes, sir. Um, so that is not the culture that I want. And that is not the culture that I'm building. Um, and the success to me is also being able to see that your managers are also building that kind of culture with the people that they're working with. So it no longer depends on you as a founder, right. but it has become such a, a part of the culture that it can exist with or without you. And I think that's important. And it's, it's a constant challenge. And, and as a business, just growth has been a challenge, just being able to see outside of yourself internally and see what does the sector look like now, 12 years ago, to say we're consultants working in advocacy. Nobody knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. Why would you hire an external today? The word, I'm not saying that we did it, but I'm saying we definitely contributed to that where it has become a whole industry in itself. We could stay months without seeing a call for proposals or we had to, I had to fight. We had to fight to, for people to understand that they needed us. Right. Um, and, and now we see more and more firms uh, growing on the continent, which is great because there's enough work for a lot more of us. There's the space um, to be to do the same thing and to do something different. Mm. I think even if you have another three, five, ten firms on this continent that do exactly what you, we do, it's good. It's it's good. It's it it makes us all better. So so I see. Of course, you started off doing a lot of um, advocacy work and and building campaigns for. Um, for development institutions and organizations. And, and now you, you've kind of, in growing and expanding, <laughs> um, you, you've moved into political campaigns. So, so I, I wanted you to, I mean, as someone who has a, a very keen interest in politics, especially African politics, that, that, was, that was interesting for me to, to see. So if you can just, how did you get into the world of political campaigns? And, and I know that you, you did run a campaign for a candidate in, in Guinea Bissau. So if you can talk to us about how you got into that and, and how, that, how you came to, to, to do that particular campaign. Politics is something that I've always wanted to do because I'm interested in, in it. And doing the social and development campaigns, it is political. I mean, our lives are political, right? So you spend time working on trade or you spend time working on arms and you engage with politicians all the time at all levels. And one of the things that I, I knew then and I still stand by now is you cannot claim to want to change politics or policies if you do not invest yourself in who designs those policies. So this, for me, has always been, right. you can't say I'll work on the policy aspect, but I will not work on the political aspect. But working for an institution, I didn't have my own voice. When you work for um, any of the institutions, you're, and especially I was a spokesperson or a comms person, you, those are organizations that are apolitical by nature. So you can't, you know, step outside of that. Right. So that was also one of the reasons for starting Niel, to be able to pick and choose what we work on and unapologetically stand by it. Um, and so it was always there, but I'm, I'm somebody who always think, take your time, take your time to learn, take your time to learn, take your time to learn. So be prior to uh, 2000 and um, 
2013, which was the first presidential campaign, um, we'd done work with some uh, movements, some political movements, just in training them around popular mobilizations, sort of door to door. So that sort of political engagement had already been done. And we were learning and growing and analyzing and assessing and working at influencing policies. But obviously I had um, really an eye on engaging in a campaign um, and to commit to that. And right. but part of that is also making sure you choose the right candidate because you literally put your own life on hold and you live for somebody else. It is, it's not something you can do two at a time. Mm-hmm. You, if you do not believe in it, it is really hard. I, some people do it for the money. There is no money in it unless you only work for those in power or you only work for certain things. But mm-hmm. my choice of getting into politics is one, how do you shift who sits there? But even more importantly, the apathy that we have as Africans around politics is one thing that I right. want to shift. I want to show that we can do campaigns differently. I want to work with people that will not go out and distribute bags of rice because that's the easy thing to do. Will not go out and hand out cash or make it rain on people because that's... And people that don't have a lot of resources can allow you to be creative in how you run it, right? So also being very careful about who we work with and... Even then, I'm, you know, I'm a young woman. I am very mindful of the value system that I hold and what I stand by. And uh, so a few friends, I have a, a friend that I worked with at Oxum, who's a brother to me now. We've known each other for forever. And he meets um, Paolo Gomez, who uh, I worked with on the Guinea-Bissau campaigns. And they're at a meeting somewhere. And Paolo tells him, yes, I'm running for president. And he says, do you have somebody running your campaign? And he says, no. He's like, go meet Val. So that's how that connection happened. So because uh, Mamadou, right. my friend, Ita and I had talked about that for a long time. So Paolo comes to Dakar. We sit down. We have a meeting. Um, and I'm like, okay, let's all, all skeletons out. Let's, let's, let's talk. Um, so we talked. I put my team on a due diligence process. We go dig. And it... After our second meeting, he's like, let's do this, which was, a, he, I, I, I will, it's, it's, it's been amazing circumstances that we saw head, we did our due diligence, the, we, we clicked very quickly and that he also saw the potential because first meeting we talked and then he's like, can you tell me how you would do this if you were to, to run this campaign? Um, and then the second meeting we talked, I already had an entire plan and this is what how I would do it. This is what I wouldn't want. This is what I would want. This are the conditions. And we were on the same page very quickly. This is somebody who says, I do not want anybody from my family around this campaign. Nobody. And he stood by it the entire time I worked with him, which was over a year period. So to have that as the first presidential campaign was amazing. Literally the freedom and the creativity to do something. This is somebody who 50 years old, never ran for office ever, was as technocrat as you can get, world, former World Bank, um, uh, and just comes in there. And the odds were like he would get less than 1%, right? And finishes the race third with 10% of the vote. Um, We were tight on resources. He self-funded this campaign uh, because again, very careful about where the money comes from, but yet it is, it, it was, it was a mind boggling experience, um, to be able to see that people who had 
in Bissau who had seen only one way of doing campaigns, the, the momentum we got and just doing things differently uh, was, was really great. And that was the first one and continued after that. I'm actually really, really fascinated and wondering what this did for you as an individual, as a woman, you know, as a, as a business person going into this space that you, you haven't been before and, and achieving that kind of success. What it did for me is make me see what is possible to do on this continent. While we're on the topic of politics, um, women in politics, women in politics in Africa, you know, I mean, you know, the last few days there was, there was the announcement of the um, uh, Prime Minister mm-hmm. Raponda, I think, in Gabon, um, appointed, um, not elected, but still has a seat at the table. And, and, and um, like, like we said, representation matters. But, but, but what, what do you find in Niel? Um, with regards to, to women involvement in politics? And do you do any type mm-hmm. of work to, to encourage participation on the continent? Yes. Um, so one of the things that we do quite regularly is go through just the continent and say, who would we want to work with politically, even if she hasn't said that she wants to be in office? And how do we poke her? Right. right? Um, because there aren't enough um, but the work that we have done as Niel a couple of um, years ago, uh, working on training, so I've worked with, with EGAD and with the National Democratic Institute to do a bit of training for women who had been elected um, in parliament in the EGAD region. So some of this engagement is something that we continue to do um, work-wise. But a couple of years ago, uh, Senegal announced that uh, for the first time, independent candidates could run for election. You didn't have to be part of a party, which gives a lot of space for new and young people. Right. So we started our own project, uh, which is not something that we do often because we cared in saying, we want to find a young person in each of the 14 regions of Senegal that will run for office and we will support them in terms of doing their brand, doing their position, just, just so that we don't miss this opportunity to have people running for office. It was regardless of the political affiliation, we were not getting that just open. We launched a call at Kegel across the country. We went on social media. We were not. We wanted half women, half men, fifty women and and, and men, right. and we weren't getting any. And at some point, we thought, okay, maybe because we want regional. So we had some from Dakar, and maybe because we want the regions, and they're not necessarily on social media. So we contacted some women's organizations and actually sent out the physical applications through buses across the country. Right. We're still we're not getting the type of applications we were. And of the few applications we were getting from women, because one of the applications was, what is, your, what, what is your contribution to your community? What do you want to do? The number that said, my dream is to open a hair salon. The number that said, um, I want to sell clothes or I want to have, it, it, it was hard to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and this says something about our political education of girls from when they're in school. Right. Because it's not even an option that they put themselves. And having worked with women um, that are in politics, all of them will tell you the discrimination is real. Right. The fact that their society or their community sees them as stepping outside of that. So to even imagine yourself there is to put yourself... Um, in a place where you will be judged because you're not supposed to be there. From your own family, you're not supposed to be there. 
And from the men in the space in which you operate, you're not supposed to be there. And if you're there is to fill out a quota or if you're there is to have the women's role. And many, many women fall into those positions. Not all of them fall into those position of, you know, if it's appointed, it's the ministry of women and girls of solidarity, of social affairs, of a soft thing, you know, if it's elected, even within their own parties, they have the women's caucus. So it's how do you go beyond that? And I think part of that is is even the work. There's there's a man that told me recently in our conversation when I told him what I was doing, he's like, oh, that's right. I expected you to be like, and I was like, you expected me to be like what? And then he paused. And it's like, no, to do one of those more women's jobs. What's and that? exactly. And I think he saw my reaction and just didn't go. Uh, for it. But no matter what we say, there's still in 2020, a thing that says to us, this is where you should go. This is what you should do. And this is mm, not so much where your place is. And if your place is there is to get us the women's vote, because every politician knows that women make the vote in terms of numbers. They're the ones that go out. Young people a lot of people talk about young people. Young people don't actually vote as much as we would like to say. Everybody says, I'm here for the women and girl, for the, the, the women and young people. You know what? It's the women that vote. Hmm. Um, the young people don't. They talk a lot behind their computers. <laughs> but in terms of, I mean, when you look at the numbers, and many of them are not registered to vote, um, except when you get into a particular moment in history where they push. I really enjoy the Not Young to Run campaign in Nigeria. That pushed people to step outside of their comfort zone and say, you can sit there and scream online, but what are you doing? Step, step in the race. Um, So when we did that, we ended up only having in the group of, we ended up picking 13 um, young people for this program I was telling you about. We had one woman. Wow. Only one. She was good though. She was very good. And she didn't run, but she was the um, campaign assistant of somebody who actually won the elections. So back to back to all the other work that Niel does <laughs> in terms of growing a business. Um, so so how how much scaling of Niel do you think that you you've done, and and um, what what plans do you have for for Niel as a Pan African as a, a global organization? Scaling up. I mean, we started in Dakar. We opened an office in Rwanda just to be closer to people in that region. Um, we, For me, scaling is not about physical footprints because if you open an office, you tend to start to want to push to feed that office and it can be an arbitrarily uh, push or pressure to do so. Um, in terms of scaling, it's the diversity in the work that we do. In terms of scaling, it's the growth of the team because it's not just as a business. For me, it's also a place where young people will come and grow and get out there. Nothing gives me more pride than when somebody, and it might be counterintuitive, leaves my team and goes somewhere great. And I will cheer and I will applaud um, in the way that they do because I feel like a lot of people have started their careers literally uh, straight out of college with us and have moved. I mean, 12 years, people have come and gone. Um, So that for me is important. So type of work that we do, diversity, being able to work in, you know, Papua New Guinea. So expanding geographically 
to the work that we do, not necessarily having a physical presence and the diversity that we have and growing to the respect that we hold yeah. in, in our sector. Um, 80% of our work is recommendation. 80% of our business is people say, I've heard of you or so-and-so told me about you or so-and-so you know, said you would do this. And then this is how the conversation starts. And I want to maintain that because I think this is a testament to having built something that, that, that has that has scale. Um, for me, future and the ultimate um, success will be for me to be able to one day leave soon and it continue without me. That's That to me is how, how whether or not I have done I well, like, that's what will dis- decide. Uh, I just very quickly want to talk about other things that you do. Um, you Is it a blog or is it a, the in service of all things Africa? Mm-hmm. If you very quickly talk to us about that because I, I literally just stumbled on that and you are quite a good writer oh, thank and you. Uh, if you can talk to us a little bit about in service of all things Africa and about your radio show as well the because in in serve we're gonna do a, a, a detour a little bit back to politics because in service of actually started as a documentary series that we started doing pre-covid and okay. the documentary series is highlighting African politicians that are in service of something greater than themselves. Okay. So because one of the things, again, um, somebody told me one day, and I can't remember who, how do you clean a dirty river? You don't get a bucket and start emptying the river and then pouring. You pour into that river and flush out the dirt. A lot mm-hmm. of young Africans or brilliant Africans, not so young, don't get into politics because they say politics is dirty. But if you stay outside, you're never going to clean it. So, and because a narrative in the media, everything you see are the ones that are corrupt, the ones that are dirty, the ones that are this, we don't tell the story of the people that are fighting the good fight. There are so many of them, not necessarily at the presidential level. They can be in their village. They can be in their town. They can be everywhere. So this documentary series, which we shot for, two in Uganda, two in Kenya, but weren't able to finish. So it's still post-COVID project, is really identifying in service of, and I have a personal battle with the notion of leadership. I, it's it's a term that just rubs me the wrong way. Uh, people trying to be leaders. Can we all? Can we start to serve? Everybody wants to lead. Who's going? Yes, for me, service is what we should all be focusing on. Um, so we did the the documentary ser- series, and it's just led me to start asking, what are we in service of? Myself, what am I in service of? And so that has sort of translated into me writing. And translated into this radio show. And the radio show, I start every episode with asking my guests, what are you in service of? Because this is the framework by which we can start talking. Once I know right. what you're in service of, then we, I know where to, how, how to take that conversation. So I'm in service of all things Africa. Um, I'm in service of humanity. I'm in service of people. I'm in service of primarily of God. And, but I always ask myself in everything that I do, what am I in service of at this moment? So this particular blog is about being in service of all things Africa, because that's the story I want to tell. Uh, the radio show is the stories. It's we need to talk. We need to talk about all things Africa. We need to talk about the things that are uncomfortable, that are difficult, that are fun, that are great, the beauty and the not so pretty. That's what um, the radio show is about. That started at the beginning of this year. And uh, it's a monthly radio show. Uh, started in Senegal and now uh, syndicated in five other countries. So really excited. What's the name of the the, the radio show? The radio show is called We Need to Talk. How do people find the radio show? Uh, 
The people, the, the radio show is uploaded as a podcast the same day that it's on the air. So people can go to inserviceof.org slash podcast or just inserviceof. It's all there. So wherever you are and you don't have to be in one of those six countries, you can listen, listen to it. The first Friday of the month is when it goes live um, on inserviceof.org. Fantastic. Fantastic. So my final, final question, Valerie, um, I ask all my guests this. So, so what's next for Valerie? I don't know. And, wow. and it's liberating. I don't know. And I don't need to know. I am enjoying what I'm doing. I am really excited about what the next turn will reveal. And I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I see myself as a pilgrim. And when you're, in, when you're a pilgrim, you walk around, you don't know when you wake up in the morning, if it will be hot, if it will be cold, if the way you're walking, you will meet who you will meet along the way. It's doing what I do now, doing the L with very clear intentionality, being present, doing it well, doing it with love, doing everything I do with love and whatever is next will reveal itself. It's, I, I'm building, I have been building something that I hope and I'm trying to make sure it stands without me. Uh, and that's what I continue to do. What is next? I don't know. I did not know radio would be in my life this year. It is. So um, I, I'm not a person who traditionally needs to know. I don't need certainty. Hmm. Uh, and that has helped in my career. I don't, I don't, I would like to know, um, but I don't need certainty. And that makes it exciting. It makes what's next exciting. I'm, I'm in a good place. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. I, uh, you've made me go back and think about things that I haven't thought about in, in a while. So this is, this is fascinating. Thank you. That was Valerie Truri, founder and executive director at Niel. You know, policies drive business. And so if we want a better enabling environment for female business owners in Africa, we must take an interest in changing and implementing the right policies. That means we must participate in the process of selecting our policy makers. We celebrate women like Valerie who are working to influence behavior and increase engagement in Africa. There are a number of elections scheduled on the continent and we are watching that space. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not already subscribed, please do so on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And while you're at it, please don't forget to write us a review. I'm Akego Koye, and you have been listening to African Business Stories.